and again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, Take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. As always, we're mindful and grateful that we have it in our language. We continue to pray that you would see it translated so that all peoples might have your word and know it and study it. Most importantly, to, to know you rightly. We pray for our friends, the Smiths, who serve with the Wycliffe translators, and those that are among them. Father, that you would continue to send out workers who will embed with people groups so that they may know about Jesus. Father, I pray today for James Underwood as he cares for his mom as she walks through cancer. Pray for the Edwards family as they care for his mom in hospice. Father, others in our midst have medical situations. We pray for your strength and your healing. We pray for your grace to be evident to them. Father, today we pray for sister churches. I pray for Krista George as he preaches at Calvary that you would empower his preaching. And then, Father, you would grant safe travel as he defends his doctoral project tomorrow in North Carolina. I pray that you would provide for Celeste and the children while he's there serving. 
Father, thank you for good brothers that you've brought to our, our city. We believe you answered our prayers. And so we continue to ask that you would allow the gospel to be clear in each sister church here in our city today. And that you would do your work through your spirit and your word. We pray now that you would do it in us. That you would help us to see and consider what Jesus shared with his disciples in one of these final teaching moments. And that it would be for our hope and our joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If it's your first Sunday with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. But we're pausing that today. All over uh, our country today, people will be celebrating Passover and Jesus entering Jerusalem. We actually got to celebrate that in January. And we've spent January and February and March up to this point considering just the last week of Jesus's life because that's what Mark does in his volume Um, but we're pausing there because on Friday as Kevin said he'll be sharing from Mark 15 with the crucifixion and then should the Lord grant us Easter Sunday we'll close out with Mark 16 in our study there and if there was anywhere else that I would love for us to be able to examine, it would be John 14 through 17. And so I sent that out uh, to our, our members. I don't know how many read it. I'm sure they were scared to death when they saw that it could be four chapters uh, that we might be considering in a sermon. But what, as Mark slows down in Mark 10 through 16, in that last week of Jesus' life, John slows down even further in the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. And John 14, 15, and 16 are Jesus' final teaching to those disciples before they go out to pray at the Mount of Olives. And John 17, obviously, is often known as his high priestly prayer, and uh, where he intercedes for his disciples and also for those who would believe through them. And if we could, I would love for us to be able to, to walk through John 14 and 15 and 16. But we had an opportunity in this Sunday to be able to at least consider a portion of that. And I want us to do so. I do want to point out some of the highlights as you think about John 14, 15 and 16. And John supposedly reclining against Jesus. There's no doubt why he would remember more or write more of those last teachings but one that I probably learned in Bible drill growing up, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the... And no man comes to the Father but by me or through me, right? So in these last moments, sharing that last supper, here's where John 14, 6 comes from. He reminds them. Of course, Philip says, hey, can we see the Father? And Jesus says, you don't realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he gives another promise in John 14, 23. Look in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What an incredible promise that God the Father and God the Son would want to dwell with us at all. And and here he's reminding them. John fifteen, you have some verses that are so crucial for me as we as we think through sanctification. But look in John fifteen, verse five. I am the vine. You are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And we always say that that means there are two things that we can do without Jesus. What are they, church? Jack and squat. Good. See, discipleship has occurred here. <clears throat> and without Jesus, we can do jack and squat. We can do nothing. And the best part is, he expects us to do nothing from him. He does not expect you to remain pure in your marriage in your own strength. 
He does not expect you, children, to obey your parents in your own strength. Teenagers, he does not expect you to stand up for Jesus in your own strength. He says, apart from me, you can't do it. And so this is the incredible hope of the gospel that every step of sanctification he intends to empower. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And as I've said to you often, the default for those who are in Christ would be that we are very fruity people. We're fruity, right? Uh, There's only one reason if the fruit of Christ is not being born through us. Either we do not know Jesus or we're not obeying Jesus. For when we know Jesus and obey Jesus, his fruit is born through us. People begin to actually look at us and say, man, that reminds me of Jesus. And so... All of these teachings are in that last conversation around that table. Moving to John 16 now, in the early, in the first half of it, we're going to cover John 16, uh, verse 16 through 33. But in the first uh, verses, especially picking up in verse 5, he reminds them that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And if you ever want to read about the Holy Spirit, John 14 and John 16 are two of the best chapters to see what the Holy Spirit will do for us. He will guide us into truth. He will convict us of sin. He will strengthen us. And he's listed as the helper. And this is really important because Jesus says something interesting. He says uh, in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, I don't know about you, but if... I'm his disciples in that night. And Jesus says to them, hey, it's going to be to your advantage that I go away from you. That's where I would have been Peter and interjected. I don't think that's to our advantage. We're already struggling with you here, right? We've seen the disciples and their responses and the things they do. And so if you are not here, we're in more trouble. But Jesus uses this word to say advantage because he says, as I depart, he's already told them in John 14 and John 16, the Father and I, we're going to send you the helper. We're going to send you the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. And so this is incredible that Jesus says he's not going to just encourage you. He's going to empower you. And he doesn't just hope we can do what we're being called to. But he helps us do what we're being called to do and following Christ. There's one other verse I want to point out to you before we jump into our focus text. Verse 12 of chapter 16 says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. (laughs) I use this in every premarital counseling uh, session that I do when I talk about communication. And we always read this verse to say, we need to know when to say what and when to stop saying, right? And Jesus knows his poor disciples' mind is already blown, but he knows the Holy Spirit will guide them and lead them into the things that he's not going to cover with them. He's going to teach them. As we pick up today, we've, we've been studying already through Mark, but as we pick up today, Jesus is using this final conversation to prepare his disciples both to suffer and to serve well, and his promise of the Spirit to help them with both of these. In our focus text of verses 16 through 33, if you had to put the passage in a sentence, it's at the top of your notes. If you received those when you came in, it's this. Though in this world we will experience difficult sorrows and struggles... Through Christ's victory, we're given peace that will never be disturbed, joy that will never be diminished, and access to the Father that will never be denied. 
we're going to experience trouble. And that's the last word he leaves with them. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So some truths I want us to see through this text. The first one is, in this world, our struggles and sorrows are real, but they're also temporary. They're very real, but they're also very temporary. Jesus doesn't deny them that they're about to be full of sorrow, that they're about to be grieved, and that they're going to have trouble as long as they're in the world. And when he prays for them in John 17, he doesn't even pray for them to be removed from the world, but to be sustained through the world. He's told them where we pick up. He's already told them some things about what they will experience. Go back to John 15, verse 18, and it says this, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So he's not denying trouble's going to come. Trouble's going to become because the world hates him. And if we're his followers, the world will hate us. And so he's not denying the reality of this. He's trying to prepare them. And especially in a few moments, he's going to be um, ripped from them. And, and they'll walk through as he's crucified and the grief and the sorrow that's going to come from that. And we've seen it. We've seen it here. We've seen it in our hometown. Today, Matt Powell is preaching for the first time since they lost their little boy. And we've seen that trouble comes to Christians and to non-Christians. Here, Jesus is talking to his very disciples to say, man, in this world, you're going to have some gut-wrenching sorrow. You're going to have some grief. And what I want to encourage you with is that, obviously, though we don't grieve without hope, we do grieve. And there's nothing unspiritual about feeling deep sorrow and grief at a time of loss. It's not ungodly to grieve. Sometimes we grieve the walls of something that didn't occur. And in this world, our grief and sorrow can, can come from several factors. But what I would like to do is to focus specifically what's some grief and sorrow that could come as highlighted here in this text. And the first one is this. Like the disciples, our, sor our sorrow can stem from disappointment when something doesn't go as we hoped. Here Jesus is preparing them and he's tried to along the way. We saw that in Mark. At least three times before he enters Jerusalem, he tells them, here's what's coming. They're going to beat me, whip me, and they're going to kill me. And, and he tries to warn them. And yet there's still this thought of he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going he's to reign at this time. He's going to inaugurate his kingdom. And so there's no doubt that some of the grief and sorrow is it's not turning out as they hoped it was going to turn out in Jerusalem, at least this go around. 
it's turning out exactly as God planned for it to turn out, which would be for their good, but they don't grasp that yet. And maybe for some of us, maybe life hasn't turned out as you thought it would. Perhaps some of you thought you'd be married now, or perhaps some of you thought you'd still be married, or perhaps you thought you'd be further along in your career or financially, or, or maybe even friendships. Or for those of you who are parents, maybe it's not turned out like you thought. Maybe you thought parenting was going to be easy. And then you brought them home from the hospital the first night. And that got shattered quickly, right? But maybe for some of us as parents, there's anger or shame. Or maybe for some of you, you took our sharing Jesus without freaking out equipping class. And you've had gospel conversations. And they not only rejected Jesus, they rejected you as well as a part of that. Sometimes sorrow and grief comes because things don't turn out like we hoped it would. Another reason that sorrow and grief comes is that like these disciples, it can stem from confusion over something in the Bible or in our circumstances. Look in verse 16 of our text. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And again, a little while while you see me. And I can imagine Peter saying, is he talking about hide and seek? What's he talking about? You won't see me, and then you will see me. Is it capture the flag? You know, and he then says, because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me. Bottom line is, they understood part, but they didn't understand all of what was going on. They understood part of the scriptures, but they didn't understand all. Have you ever wondered why the Lord uh, does not make everything in the Bible clear for us to begin with? And, and what I want to say to you is the problem of clarity isn't on his end, all right? But have you ever wondered why, why here, here they, they admit it. I don't know what he means, right? They're having this last supper and in their mind, what's he talking about that we will see him, we won't see him? Well, I would submit to us that the, the reason that he doesn't make it all clear is in one means to show us our own spiritual poverty, before he brings clarity to us. If it were all easy, then we would take credit for our brilliance and figuring it all out rather than being pushed to dependence on him and admitting our spiritual dullness and seeking him for insight. I think he does it so that in the end he receives the glory rather than we, rather than we. Well, they think they get it. He, he does promise them. Look at verse 25. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And what an incredible hope. Look, things seem unclear now, but they're going to be clear, and I'm going to speak in some ways that will be clear to you. And then in verse 29, they say, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech, and we believe these things. And then verse 31, Jesus says, now you believe, and it can sound real encouraging, right? But look at what he says after that. Behold, the hour is coming when you're all going to be scattered. He said, so you sure you get it? You sure you get it? And so we see this picture. The reality is Luke will record for us in Luke 24 after the resurrection when Jesus appears to his disciples. Luke writes and says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's when they're going to get it. That's when they're ultimately going to understand but in the meantime, there's some things that are unclear for them. And sometimes grief and sorrow comes because it's unclear. There's a hope for us, though. Uh, what's unclear now will one day be clear. Maybe you've been walking through some situations in your own journey. Maybe some circumstances. Maybe something even from the Word. I look forward 
to having difficult passage resolved clearly and not being from a professor at seminary. And I, look, I look forward to the Lord helping me understand passages such as Hebrews 6 and others. Uh, and so sometimes the sorrow comes because we don't yet see it fully. Like the, like the disciples, though, our sorrow can stem from the seeming triumph of evil people. Look at verse 20 in our text. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. But the first half of that is, while they're reaping and grieving, the world's rejoicing. Matter of fact, in the text that we read earlier, there are going to be those who, when they persecute you, they think they're serving God. And in our world, uh, it seems so often uh, that evil is rejoicing. That the world is rejoicing when Christians are punished. I read yesterday about a woman who had her three-year-old son ripped away from her and thrown into the river because she wouldn't convert to Islam where she was. I know of a Christian who was tortured in Sudan and made to stare at the sun until his retinas were completely burned and he could no longer see. We even look in the past week with the, with the bill that's been uh, voted on or so claims that Planned Parenthood would be defunded only to find out they may be receiving $500 million. In our world, it seems at times that people who serve the cause of evil seem to advance and triumph. Asaph dealt with the same struggle in Psalm 73. It seems like those who aren't about you are winning. And he entered the sanctuary, and the Lord reminded him of the ultimate outcome of things. And Asaph said, that's right. You're right. You're good. What I want to remind you today, look at what he says. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Let me give you a reminder. All of the world's joy is temporary. But all of our sorrows are temporary. One day, everything they have taken joy in will perish, and they will perish along with it. And this is not something that should cause us to rejoice, but cause us to be grieved. That their joy is in delighting in evil overcoming and evil being good and we need to be reminded that their joy is temporary and why even those who persecute us that we would forgive and seek their reconciliation with the Lord we often sing this is my father's world and though the wrong seems off so strong God is the ruler yet one other cause of sorrow from this text is that we live in a fallen creation Jesus is going to be taken and Jesus is going to die because we live in a world where death still exists. Death, disease, disease, destruction, disappointment. I mentioned in my prayer, James Underwood walking through with his mother and cancer, diseases like dementia. I had a conversation this week with, with a man whose mother-in-law has just been diagnosed with dementia. And we see diabetes. I've watched diabetes, <laughs> portions of my mom's foot be taken away year after year. Lou Gehrig's disease, you name it takes their toll on those who have them and those who care for them and so in this fallen world that we live where death still exists and there can be sorrow and grief but our sorrow over the loss of things that bring temporal joy is necessary to drive us to Christ for permanent joy to drive us to Christ for permanent joy I want to encourage you this morning though in times of sorrow if you're walking through those even now that you would do two things you would spend more time in God's word and you would spend more time in prayer. 
I, I shared with our pastoral staff, um, obviously one of the classes that I teach at, at Southeastern Seminary is preaching through the genres. And I always make sure to give it a group assignment from the laments to those pastors who are coming because many of them don't preach from the laments. That's not the first place they go to teach you how to build a church, preach through lamentations. Um, and so I make them go there. I love what another has written about the laments. He says, God has placed personal and national laments in scripture. He would appear as a corrective against euphoric celebratory notions of faith, which romantically portray life as consisting only of sweetness and light. God has given us the laments in scripture as a solace where the full spectrum of our earthly journey can be represented. Lamentations force us to deal with suffering by directing our despair not away from God, but toward him. And the lamentations themselves perform the pastoral work of comforting us without downplaying the human realities of suffering and pain. When it doesn't turn out like we thought it would, we tend to be those who go away from God rather than to him. But lamentations teaches us Go to God and work it out together. Wrestle it out. Roll it out. And so in times of sorrow, don't go away from the word. Go deeper into the word. Don't stop praying. Keep praying. Jesus has already told you, you will have tribulation. If you go and invite all your staff and all your coworkers to come to our Passion Week lunch and none of them come, one, don't be surprised. And if it causes further issues at your workplace, don't be surprised. Jesus has said, you're going to have sorrow and grief and tribulation in this world. But all that's temporary. And the reason that's temporary is because of truth number two. Our sorrows are temporary because Christ has overcome the world and his victory is eternal. The very last verse, verse 33, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And the way that the word overcome is written here, there's no doubt about that, that it's solid and sure and will always be sure. There's never a time in which the world will overcome Christ. Christ has and will always overcome the world. And so this is why our sorrows are but for a night. And the reality is even if your sorrow or your struggle lasts for the rest of your life, it has an end because Christ is overcome. If Christ is not overcome, then there's no need for us to even be gathered here. Our sorrows and griefs would be more than we could bear. But he has overcome. And how is it that he's overcome? There is a summary of the gospel in verse 28. In his teaching to them, here's what he says in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. It's a summary of his mission. I it came from the Father, obviously points to his deity and his eternality, his preexistence. That's why often at Christmas, uh, we don't celebrate the birth of Jesus as much as we try to emphasize the incarnation of Jesus. He didn't just come into existence into the manger. He came into our world into that manger, but he existed for all time before there was anything else. Before there was let there be light, there was Jesus, right? And so he says, I come from the Father. And then he says, I've come into the world. We see his humanity, his taking on flesh. And that's what's being celebrated is this Passover week that he came to die for us. Matter of fact, look in John 17, the very next chapter, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's what I want on my tombstone one day. Not in the same way that Jesus did it, obviously. 
but to glorify the Lord by accomplishing whatever the work is that he's given me to do, we can celebrate that he, he has come into the world to do something, and that's what he's accomplishing, which is why he says in the next part of verse 28, I'm leaving the world. Well, how's he leaving the world? He will leave the world through a cross. He will leave the world through a substitutionary death. We see his propitiation, the big word, where Jesus takes God's wrath, but he's telling them, I'm leaving the world. But then here's the word of great hope. The very last phrase, going to the Father, which points to his exaltation, his vindication, to reaffirm all along, I'm not a crazy lunatic who just showed up and got you to quit fishing for a little bit. You will see when the Father raises me from the dead, the vindication and the exaltation that will come. I'm going to the Father. I think about where, you know, we've seen these political uh, messages. I'm so-and-so, and I approve this message, right? You've seen these commercials. I fast-forward through them, but I read the lips at the end, right? Read my lips. So here's what he's saying. When he says, going to the Father, it's as if the Father says, I approve of this message. I am affirming what Christ has done in here. This is the only way that Christ has overcome the world. He came from the Father, came into our humanity, took on our sin, conquered the grave, and is raised again. And this is why he says, you will have trouble, but not always. As you have trouble, you will never have more trouble than Christ had on the cross. No one has ever experienced sorrow or grief or tribulation as Christ has. As a matter of fact, in a few moments from this conversation here in John, he's going to lead him out to the Mount of Olives. And his sorrow will overwhelm him. The gospel writers use a picture that it's as if a wall of sorrow is squeezing and pushing in all around him, so much so that he begins to sweat drops of what? Blood. Those of you who know it know that through the overwhelming experience, considering the wrath of God that is coming, sweating drops of blood, no one has ever experienced more grief or sorrow. You and I have sorrow and grief for our sin, but I've never taken on the sorrow and grief for the sin of the world. All of that grief, all of that shame, and then all of that wrath poured into him. And so as you and I have grief and sorrow, which we will, it will never compare to what he's had, and yet hear his word about all of that. I've overcome it. I have overcome, and I'm going to the Father. Vindication for this. Now, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, there, there are three blessings that we get as a part of this, of his overcoming. It's that peace that will never be disturbed, joy that will never be diminished, and access to the Father that will never be denied. And I would submit to you that the peace and joy are because of the third one. That we have this peace and joy because we have access to the Father. Look at what he says in verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. You may have peace. Uh, one of the prophets in the Old Testament said, it's not just that Jesus brings peace, but that he is our peace. Hold your place in John and turn to Romans 5. When Jesus talks about peace, there's one peace that is unbelievably significant. In Romans 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Jesus promises peace, and he says in him, our peace, Paul picks it up. Through Jesus is the only way we have peace, and that that peace is with God. What our world doesn't consider often is that we are in enmity with God, that because of our sin, we are enemies with God. And what Jesus is saying, that through me you will have peace, and the most important piece of that is peace with God the Father, that our sin no longer causes him to be at war or separated from us. Uh, Sirius XM has been running the Billy Graham channel for uh, a couple weeks now since his death, and uh, they're doing it through April 4th. And so I just leave that on in my car, and every time I get in my car, you hear Billy Graham preaching blood and preaching Jesus and preaching peace that is available with God that comes only through Christ. And so when Jesus says peace, it will never be diminished. What you need to know is from Romans 5, 1, nothing will ever change this. Nothing will reignite God's war with you because on the cross of Christ, it's finished. It's settled. You have a peace that will never be diminished based on your failings during Passion Week, based on your failings after Passion Week, based on your failings next week. And none of that will diminish the peace that comes through Jesus with God the Father. And then, of course, one of the more famous instances of peace is in Philippians, that the peace of God surpasses all understanding guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. There's peace that comes so that when you get that diagnosis, cancer, dementia, your child has died. There's a peace that passes our heart and our mind that doesn't make sense to the world. And that comes only through Christ. It's a peace that will not be diminished or taken away in any way. It won't be disturbed, that we will continue to have that. Uh, I think about it in my own journey in numerous times where people uh, would think this is appropriate time to freak out. This is appropriate time to be anxious. Why are you not? To which the answer is Jesus. Jesus. You lost your job. Jesus. Your spouse cheated on you. I trust Jesus. He's going to provide. He's going to care. And so one of the blessings as he goes to the cross is for you and I, peace that will never be disturbed. Peace with God. Second, joy that will never be diminished. Look in verse 22. It says, so also you have sorrow. Back in, back in John 16. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and you should underline this. No one will take your joy from you. By seeing Jesus again, they would have a joy that would never be diminished. His whole journey has been that our joy would be full. He says this repeatedly, even in verse 24. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Does your boss care about your joy? Your neighbors care about your joy, especially if they mow their lawn at seven on a Saturday. Do your children care about your joy, parents? You hope, but children, are you convinced that your parents care about your joy? Well, yeah, I knew Adoram, Adoram, no, right? No, if you care about my joy, we'd be at, uh, uh, what's the pizza place? Chuck E. Cheese every day, right? Here's an incredible thought. Just, just pause on this for a moment. The God of the universe wants you not to have kind of joy or partial joy. 
full joy. This is why he calls us to set our affections upon him because in setting our affections in lesser places, they will never provide what he provides. The psalmist says, in his presence is fullness of joy. You know why you and I keep choosing sin? Because we think there's going to be more joy in that sin than there is in obedience. And there never is, is there? I've never had lasting joy come from one moment of sin. But Jesus says, I've come that when you see me again, you will have joy and no one will ever be able to take that joy from you. Matter of fact, once the helper is sent after Pentecost, we see their joy was never diminished. Even after they were beaten for being faithful to Jesus, their joy was permanent. And this is a benefit. So as Christ leaves this conversation and moves to the cross, he does so so that you and I would have peace with God. And he does so so that you and I would have joy that could never be stolen from a circumstance or a situation or a person or anything else. Joy. Matter of fact, Jesus says, for the joy set before him, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus endured the cross, scorning and shame. That's incredible joy if it gets you through the cross, setting your eyes there. As I said before, I think the peace and the joy are both built on this third blessing, access to the Father that will never be denied. John 16, verse 23 says, In this day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then verses 25 through 27, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. How many of you prayed this week? How, how many of you, in praying this week, paused and thought, what incredible access I have to God of the universe? Any of us? Mr. Jim, Maisie, all right? I think sometimes we forget what an incredible privilege it is that we have access to the Father. And don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's not telling the disciples, if you're really good, maybe you can work your way up and get to his receptionist. No. He's saying, because of what I've done, you will have immediate access to the Father. You bring your own request, I'll be the mediator. You bring your own request. And then, look at what he says. Please don't miss this. He says, verse 27, because you might want to underline that, for the Father himself loves you. For any of you who've heard that the God of the Old Testament was just angry and wrathful, but Jesus is one of love, the authors of the New Testament remind us constantly, the reason Jesus is here is because God loved us. He loved us and sent his son. And so here's an incredible thought. Just let this wash over you for one moment. God the Father loves you. And he cannot demonstrate that any clearer than in sending Christ to take on your worst rebellion and to make a way so that you could be reconciled, having peace with him, and then access so that you could bring all of your requests before him. And it's such an incredible truth that that access will never be denied. How many of you have chosen sin and then prayed afterward, seeking forgiveness? Isn't this the great hope? 
that we don't go based on our faithfulness to the Father. We go based on Christ's faithfulness. That we have access. And he's telling them this. And no wonder, you know, they're still rocked. This is that last time. Just take this moment in. His last teaching. He's reclining at the table. It's possible that Judas has already left at this point. Who knows? And he's teaching them. And what sweet truth he's teaching. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have trouble. But I've overcome it. Because don't, don't forget. I came from heaven. I came into the world. I'm about to leave the world, but I'm going to the Father. That's where I'm going. And now because of that, you will have peace. You can have joy. And you can come to the Father. Asking whatever, whatever. Which gets us to where I want to close. Look at those to whom these blessings are promised. Jesus says, in verse 31, do you now believe? Because they say they do. We believe that you came from God in verse 30. He says, do you now believe? And then he brings up something interesting. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the fathers with me. What good do you promise to people who wound you deepest? Do you promise blessings to them? Hey, I know you're about to rip my heart out. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I know having grown up with an abusive father, the fleshly reaction is not to do good to evil. The fleshly reaction is to do evil to evil. To repay evil with evil. Not to repay evil with good. Now in this text, he's been telling them about peace and joy and access to the Father. And they are all about to abandon him. That's why the gospel is the greatest news for the worst people. He's promised these blessings, not because they're going to be faithful in the next few moments, but because he's going to be faithful. He will be faithful to walk toward those torches that come from Jerusalem out to that Olivet. He would be faithful in those trials. And he would be faithful on that cross. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. If I were to be honest, I deserve no peace, no joy, and no access to the Father. And that's just based on last week. Possibly based on this morning. God grants all these to us based on Christ's faithfulness to us. I read an illustration this week that it's a tribute to a musician. Musician when he can take an imperfect instrument and use it to play great music. It's a tribute to a surgeon who can perform a difficult operation in primitive conditions at a remote mission station without all the sophisticated medical devices that are available in our country. But even more so, it's a tribute to our Lord that he uses imperfect instruments to establish and build his kingdom. And I put a quote there from C.H. Dodd in your notes. It's a part of the character and genius of the Lord that the church's founding members were discredited men it owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. This they could never forget. You know the fact the church still exists today. From this moment, from, from John 16 to, to today, it exists to the glory of our Lord. Don't miss what we sing. He will bring me all the way home. He will build. He will sustain. And that's why I love this text. 
These are the final words. And he says, you're going to have trouble, but you won't have trouble always. The reason you're not going to have trouble always is because I'm about to go take that trouble on myself. And in the end, you will have peace and joy and access, even though I know you're about to all abandon me. What an incredible God. What an incredible God. That even in the moments of the Passion Week, we see our wretchedness and his goodness. Mitch is going to come and we're going to transition to just to sing the truth in response to this text. I don't know how many of you saw, but uh, this week there was a hostage situation in France and a French police officer traded so that the one that was being held hostage would be released. He took, he took the place of the one that was being held. And in the raid that ensued on the, the one that was holding them hostage, the police officer was wounded and then later died that night from those wounds. And I was thinking here at Passion Week, even in our world, you see this incredible picture of substitution. And here's this police officer who volunteered. He didn't have to do that. Incredible love, Jesus says, that one who lays down his life for another. But I'm certain the police officer didn't want to lay down his life if he didn't have to, but he was willing to do that. And in the course of the events, there's one walking around in France now because there was one who died in his place. One day you and I will walk around heaven. It won't be because we were really good on earth. It will be because there's one who came and substituted for us and took all our wretchedness so that one day we could be with him. The promise that he says, the Father and I will dwell with you. If that's not a big deal to you today, would you pray in these next few moments, God, break my cold heart. That God in Christ would want to dwell with you. That Jesus doesn't have to convince the Father to love you. Jesus is there because the Father does love you. That the God of the universe cares about your joy. Not joy that comes from a moment of sin. Joy that lasts forever. Joy that can't be diminished. Joy that's full. He cares about peace. And he cares enough about you that he's made a way that you can cast your cares upon him. And so as we encounter Passion Week... It's the last moment where Jesus is with his guys. And he says, I've come. This is what I came to do. And you're going to see the vindication of it. And you can come to my father too. But not based on your faithfulness. On mine. On mine. And I give it to you. A couple questions I would ask. Are you going through sorrow or struggle right now? And are you just wanting to get out of it rather than being sanctified through it? And that you call out to the Lord. Cast your care on Him. He cares for you. And remember that even if this sorrow lasts for the life, because sometimes it does. Sometimes that disease does take our life. Sometimes that situation with that loved one never resolves. But if that sorrow lasts for a lifetime, it will not last for an eternity. Call out to the Lord. Are you grateful for Christ's victory through his life and death and resurrection? Are you grateful he came from the Father and into our world to do what we couldn't do for ourselves? Are you also grateful that the grave couldn't hold him and he reigns even now at the right hand of the Father? 
what is the gospel fueling in our lives? Is there evidence of that? Are you experiencing peace and joy that comes through Christ's granting us access to the Father? Have you paused and just said, thank you, Father, that I can talk to you directly. Thank you for what you did in order for that to be a possibility. And then last, are you praising him that these three, peace, joy, and access are yours because of Christ's faithfulness and not yours? I know I do. Every week. Every week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these last moments that John recorded, such important conversations. Thank you for the promise of a helper that you're not expecting us to do a single thing for our justification or our sanctification or glorification in our own strength. Apart from you, Jesus, we can do nothing. If this week we've been trying to live a good life or live an obedient life in our own power, would you remind us that you've never asked us to do that? If we're trying to forgive someone in our own strength, if we're trying to seek reconciliation in our own strength, would you remind us that we're just not that kind? We're not that forgiving. We need your power. For those that are walking through maybe grief or sorrow, maybe something hasn't turned out like they thought it would. Certainly in those first few days, the disciples were in that same situation. And maybe our sorrow hasn't yet been turned to full joy. I pray that you would come alongside those in the middle of those situations. And I pray that they would cry out to you to be sanctified through it, not just to get out of it. Please don't let us read a verse that you came from the Father, came into the world, you were going out of our world and going to the Father and make it just a theological exercise. Please let a verse that contains such incredible truth fuel our praise. You did not have to come from the Father. You did not have to come into our world. You did not have to go out of our world the way that you did. But you chose. I pray that be precious to us as we consider this week especially. But I pray that be precious to us each day. I pray for your peace to guard hearts and minds so that it would point to you, Jesus. I pray for joy, even in the midst of difficult situations, so it would point to you, Jesus. And I pray we would never take for granted access that we have to do exactly what we're doing right now, Father. As Jesus, our mediator, we're bringing these requests to you. Thank you for all that's promised, even though Jesus says they're all about to be scattered. I thank you that the gospel is the best news for the worst people. That we can come to Jesus bringing all our rebellion and receive all his righteousness. I pray that each in this room will do that. I pray that the gospel would be precious and sweet today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.